According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again. Philippians chapter 4, Philippians 4, verses 20 through 23, the conclusion to the chapter, the conclusion to the book. Philippians 4, verses 20 through 23. As the Bible is laying open here across the pulpit, I'm glancing across to the letter of Paul to the Colossians, and it's calling out to me. So um, it will be our next book study once we do complete uh, Philippians. The order I settled on uh, sometime back was going to be, after we had worked out uh, Galatians, was that we were going to do Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and then culminate with Ephesians, Lord willing and rapture pending. That'll be our journey through the prison epistles. All right, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's open with a word of prayer and ask for our Father's blessing upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth. Rejoicing in your faithfulness, Father. This is our blessing to study, to learn, to grow, and it's your blessing to uh, to teach us, Father. We thank you for the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. I thank you that he leads us into all things, even the deep things of God. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again. Set aside our distractions, humble us, uh, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And we're going to spend some time with this and talk about greetings as we did in Galatians, as we've done in previous book studies. Romans was full of greetings, a whole chapter practically there. And Romans 16 is filled with greetings. Uh, And uh, the blessings of being able to fellowship over a distance what uh, you know? What might they have done with Facebook and Twitter and everything else? But the blessing is to communicate to brothers and sisters in other places to uh, to knit those communities closer together is uh, is very important. And so we'll discuss that as we uh, work through those verses. And then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, not just be with you, but be with your spirit. And uh, the conclusion uh, there, I think, is is noteworthy as well. For this morning, though, as we're working on. Uh, glory, greetings, and grace, where we are still in the midst of the glory part, which is under point one, understanding that God's glory is not diminished and uh, his grace is not diminished, his riches are not diminished. When uh, you start with an infinite amount of glory and grace and riches, uh, there's no way to diminish it. So he extends them and uh, we're thankful for that. Same thing, by the way, when we extend grace, we are in no way diminished either when we become implements of grace towards one another that it does not diminish. In fact, we are more blessed to give than to receive. And so we are magnified in uh, different ways as we become instruments of God's grace. That becomes an important principle also. When the Father bestows His riches and glory, it diminishes neither His riches nor His glory. And so we've been looking at glory under uh, subpoint A, these studies on glory and glorification, recognizing that we're not changing God in any way, we're not increasing His glory in any way, but we are communicating a high regard. That's what it means to glorify, 
to communicate a high regard and to influence others. What we're increasing is not his intrinsic worth or value or glory. We are increasing other people's estimation of God's infinite glory. And that uh, hopefully is, uh, is clear at this point. So had some subpoints there. I'm going to skip through those. One, two, and three. And we're ready then for, because we took the time actually to uh, remind ourselves of a study we did way back in the First Corinthians series uh, out of First Corinthians chapter 6 when we were dealing with, uh, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. And if you want more on that, the, we've got notebooks out there in the hall or the PDFs are on the website uh, as well as the MP3 files to, uh, to review all of that. I'm going to move on though to a second point under point one. So this would be sub point B. God the Father's good pleasure to glorify God the Son ultimately glorifies Himself. God the Father's good pleasure to glorify God the Son ultimately glorifies Himself. And this is where really we want to recognize what's stated in verse 20 and what has previously been stated back in chapter 2 and really what has been previously stated throughout the New Testament as it relates to the Father's plan in glorifying God the Son. And uh, we'll draw some applications for this and also recognize that we have our own uh, uh, applications related to serving one another in, uh, in a similar way. So point B, God the Father's good pleasure to glorify God the Son ultimately glorifies Himself. And so specifically, as it says, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Not just be future, but be now. It's a present reality now. It will continue for all eternity. And uh, we'll define for you forever and ever here shortly. Uh, but how? In what way? What, what practical ways? How, what's the quickest way or the surest way to glorify the Father? Well, it's glorify the Son. Start with that. Because it's the Father's good pleasure to glorify the Son. If you glorify the Son, you will be glorifying the Father. And ultimately that's what it comes down to. Just uh, a note of reminder, back in chapter 2, we had uh, discussed this in the Kenosis passage that Jesus had uh, uh, humbled himself. And this is the attitude we're supposed to have. So flip with me back to chapter 2 and let's take a look. Remember this is, uh, in some would say, this is the, the whole book of Philippians right here in a paragraph. That this is the essence of Philippians, to be like-minded with Christ. And that's the attitude of humility. So um, of course 5 through 8 talks about the kenosis and the humility of our Savior that uh, in, with the imperative of think this way in verse 5. So think this way. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself. The verb is kanao, to empty. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the, the unimaginable, infinite humility of our Savior, that's the pattern for us to emulate. And whatever claim we think we have, we're, we're willing to let whatever go so that we can reach forward to what lies ahead. We're willing to, to be used by the Father in whatever capacity He calls for us to do. And that's a humility task. That's, uh, that's uh, 
the opportunity for the Father to test our faith and determine what it is we're holding on to too tightly that we're not willing to let go as we move forward and obey the Father in the different assignments He gives to us. And so it's for this reason also, on the basis of His humility, on the basis of His faithfulness and what He accomplished at the cross and having done everything the Father had for Him to do, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So this is the pattern for us and we want to imitate Christ. Reading here from Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11. And we want to let go of the things we're supposed to let go of. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And we're supposed to be faithful to the very end so that when we do stand before the Father, when we do stand before the Bema seat, we hear well done good and faithful servant so that we can receive our crowns, we can receive our new name. And so here's Jesus receiving the ultimate exaltation. So for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. This goes back to Isaiah and prophecies of the Old Testament. Every knee will bow of those which are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The definition of everything you know, all the dimensions of uh, the physical dimension of this universe, the heavenly dimension, the underworld in terms of uh, death and Hades under the earth, every knee, every tongue. And when you study the plan of God from Alpha to Omega, you realize this is it. The Father loves the Son and is magnifying the Son at every opportunity. And from Alpha to Omega, the purpose is to magnify the Son to the maximum. But notice the the consequence then after that Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, what does it say? To the glory of God the Father. So when the Father receives His maximum purpose, which I believe is the Omega moment after a thousand generations in the fullness of time, when when the Father receives His maximum good pleasure at the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ, then what's going to happen? The Son Himself is going to deliver up the kingdom back to the Father that God may be all in all that uh, the Father Himself is glorified by having glorified the Son uh, every step of the way. I hope this, I mean, this gets us into larger pictures than what we're going to tackle here this morning, but nevertheless, it's good to keep it in mind. And they also become um, really uh, illustrative for our own application when we are here to serve one another, when we're here to communicate the high regard we have for others rather than ourselves, and uh, what we're doing in, as a husband honors his wife, as a wife honors her husband. What happens as we honor one another, ultimately speaking, it comes back to us in terms of ultimate reward in heaven and the, the, uh, the uh, blessings that we can re- anticipate at the judgment seat of Christ. All right, and so we have the principle there. What about Romans 11 and verse 36? Is this also in agreement? Romans 11 and verse 36. And I mentioned this is, uh, can be some pretty deep stuff, and Paul agrees with me, because what he says here in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches... Okay, these are the riches. My God will supply all your need according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. And how, how rich is that? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And uh, just the wonder of it all. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so in this plan of God that whereby the Father sends the Son and whereby the Holy Spirit empowers the operation, this whole plan, He's the source of it, He's the instrument of it, He's the means of it, and ultimately He's the the purpose and destiny for all of it. And we want to keep that in our thinking or we lose track or we uh, we get full of ourselves or we we start to slip into the common, uh, I think, finite and and, uh, flawed uh, anthropocentric views. We make everything man-centered. We make everything about our redemption. And, and in the plan of God, yes, it's a redemptive plan, but it's bigger than that. Redemption is a segment of a much larger plan. And uh, it, to me, it's just it's such a, it's, it's a, it's a juvenile understanding of the plan of God to just center it on, on giving us eternal life. Okay? And I, and I risk, you know, offending folks, or, or I, I risk actually um, folks taking it the wrong way when I say that. Saving you is not the center of God's plan, but it's the truth. Uh, it, it's it, glorifying Christ is the center of God's plan. Saving you is a part of that because He wants to provide a bride for His Son. I mean, what father doesn't want to provide a bride for His Son and a bride that's worthy of His Son? And that's what He's doing now in calling out the church and calling out the bride is fitting a, a suitable bride for His perfect Son. It's, a, it's an extraordinary plan. So from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So when it comes to glorifying God forever, we want to do that. And we're going to start right here, right now, by glorifying His Son. As we glorify His Son, we're actually working towards the eternal glory of God the Father. And uh, that should be pretty straightforward for us. <clears throat> some uh, some subpoints here to consider related to this. God the Father's subjection of all things under Christ clearly does not include the Father Himself. Uh, that should go without saying, but uh, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 27. God the Father's subjection of all things under Christ clearly does not include the Father Himself. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-seven. And so with this as a pattern, you see where we're going to be going with this. It's, this holds true for the subjection concepts. This holds true for the glory concepts. As God the Father is glorifying Jesus Christ to the maximum, that's not in any way diminishing the Father's own personal glory. In fact, it's magnifying it as it will be returned to Him by the Son, uh, as we'll see here. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-seven. But even if we didn't have this verse... How many examples do we have from the Old Testament, from Bible stories, from Sunday school? I mean, you think about every time like Joseph gets promoted and he's put on the throne next to Pharaoh. And, uh, and Pharaoh says, everything except, of course, my own throne, uh, you're in charge of it all. Pharaoh just gives everything into Joseph's care. And even before that, Potiphar had put everything in his household under Joseph's care. Everything except himself, clearly. And then, uh, of course, Mrs. Potiphar had to throw that in there. But we have these examples again and again and again. We have uh, Daniel being elevated by Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and, and here he is as magnified above everybody else within Babylon except of course who? Nebuchadnezzar. 
So the one who does the, uh, the subjecting, the one who does the magnifying and the glorifying, um, clearly he is accepted from the all things that are then uh, given. And so even if we didn't have this verse explicitly spell it out the way that it does, I think we have plenty of examples uh, throughout Scripture to make that clear. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 is our resurrection chapter, and uh, as we discuss um, the order of the various resurrections, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Uh, everybody else that was raised in the Old Testament was simply, uh, I kind of prefer the term uh, resuscitation. They were restored back to mortal life, uh, at which point they died later on, just like Lazarus came out of the grave, restored to mortal life, uh, subsequent uh, death still pending. But Jesus was the first to be raised uh, permanently, to be raised and glorified, to be raised in what we call a resurrection body. And he is the first, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And uh, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. And this is where uh, we lock in on it and we understand the rapture event comes next. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. That's you and me when the trumpet sounds and we're launched out of here. Then comes the end. Then comes the end. And there's actually an assortment of resurrections at the end called the first resurrection, the last resurrection, or the second resurrection. Um, Doug had a question about after the thousand generations, do they experience a resurrection event or what happens to them? Well, we can speculate, but the the text isn't going to tell us. So uh, then comes the end. Notice now, when he hands over the kingdom, and this is called, sometimes it's called the great abdication. I think that's a mislabeling because he doesn't let go when he hands it over to the Father. The Father and Son actually joint reign together for all eternity. Jesus' reign is forever, so it can't end. When he hands it to the Father, that doesn't mean he stops. All right, so uh, that's not a trick question. How long is forever? Okay, how long is forever and ever? And why do we have a difference between forever and forever and ever? Why is that? All right, because God wants to drive that point home and we want to grab what God is teaching. So uh, then comes the end. Out of all of the in the beginning passages, this is the, the glorious in the end passage. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so Jesus has a reign in the millennial kingdom that is really a uh, a difficult reign. It's It's a reign of conflict. It's a reign where he rules with a rod of iron. It's a reign where he has to punish sin. There's still sin and death for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's not until all things are made new that uh, that we're brought into the new heavens and the new earth when there's no more sin, no more death. The first things have passed away. And then Jesus gets a reign of glory. Then he gets a reign of not just a thousand years, but a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And what a promise is that? A thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth. And so uh, with no more death and all things in in subjection to him. And so when all things are subjected to him, then... And this is a restatement of what verse 24 is talking about is the end when he hands over the kingdom, when he paradidomies the kingdom. And this too is a glorious statement because paradidomy is oftentimes is a verb of betrayal. 
It's a verb of Jesus was betrayed. He was paradidomied. Jesus was given over. Judas gave him over. The Jews gave him over. The Romans gave him over. Ultimately, God the Father gave him over. But now Jesus is giving over the kingdom to the Father. And uh, in verse 27, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. So when the Father gives all things to the Son, the one thing that's kept apart is the Father himself, right? The Father himself. The Father is not subjected to the Son. He is the one that is delegating all things to the Son. All right. And so essentially, I don't know if you ever study, um, let me put this up in our plan of God charts. Um, this is the timeline from Alpha to Omega and the different stewards that God has had. Presently, we've got the church, that's us. Right there, there's the church. Israel preceded us, and Israel will follow us, by the way. God's not done with Israel. They're simply on hold until the church is raptured out of here, and then Israel will return their stewardship. That's why we've got the Israel color that extends over beyond the church there. Before Israel had their stewardship in the call of Abraham, it was a Gentile stewardship in Adam, a human stewardship, the dispensation of man. Before that, angels. Angels had a stewardship on the world that was. We had the world that was and the world that is, or this present world. And then there's the world to come. And remember, the world to come was not subjected to angels concerning which we speak. Okay, that's the quote from Hebrews. The world to come is subjected to Christ, as all things are subjected to Christ. And so between Alpha and Omega, what we have here are a series of stewardships, a series of stewardships whereby agents serving the Father are representing Him and and managing His household. That's what a steward is, a manager of a household. And uh, you want... The steward is, uh, is dedicated to being faithful until such time as he gives an account of his stewardship. Now, if you've ever done these studies before, it's pretty clear, going back to Schofield and others made it real obvious, that uh, there's never been a stewardship yet that has ended with a victory. <laughs> you know? They all have been miserable as far as their conclusions in, uh, in the fall of the angels, in the fall of, of Adam and Eve into sin, in the flood, and the, uh, the Jews didn't do any better. They crucified their Christ. And uh, there's always wishful thinking on the part of Christians today that think, well, the church will be different. Uh, you know, we're going to be positive to, to Bible doctrine in ways that, are we really? Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? You know, and I wonder, uh, Paul talks about in, in later times, most people's love will grow cold. And uh, the apostasy that's, uh, you know, prophesied, I think it's been here for a while, and it's just getting worse you know, with, each, uh, with each generation. So, no, I don't expect that uh, there'll be a thriving revival happening in the world uh, when the trumpet sounds and the church is raptured out of here. And uh, when the small segment of redeemed depart, uh, will we even be noticed? Will we be missed? Will the unbelievers be so happy to see us gone that uh, that it'll be without much comment on their part? Uh, you know, we're glad they're out of here. Okay. Anyway, um, and then of course the tribulation that follows, the millennium that follows, 
the millennial kingdom, you'll notice, if you, those of you with sharp eyes, will notice that what remains for Israel there includes the tribulation and the millennium. The millennium is the final age out of all the ages that, that Israel has had in their stewardship. Uh, Schofield and Theme and other pastors would break out the millennium and give it uh, a separate dispensational heading. But the world to come, that's the new dispensation. That's the, the stewardship under Jesus Christ Himself personally. And Jesus Christ is representing the Father. This will be the first stewardship to end in victory. Even the millennium ends in a failure. You understand that? Millennial failure. There's a Gog-Magog rebellion in Revelation chapter 20 that ends the millennium in a failure. The only, all the Gentile nations are in rebellion against Christ and it's only the Jews. <laughs> Imagine that. For the first time in their history they stay faithful with uh, all the Gentiles around them in rebellion against the Lord. So that's, uh, that's what we're dealing with. So um, anyway, as we teach it, the millennium is a thousand years. The fullness of times is a thousand generations. Big difference. You can't have a thousand generations in a thousand years. That's not long enough. Okay? So a thousand years, a thousand generations. The summing up of all things in Christ. So, God the Father's subjection of all things under Christ clearly does not include the Father Himself. Secondly, God the Father's subjection of all things under Christ also establishes Jesus Christ as head over all things to the church. Join me in Ephesians chapter 1. God the Father's subjection of all things under Christ also establishes Jesus Christ as head over all things to the church. In the church's role as body and fullness. As body and fullness. Ephesians 1 and uh, verse 10 of course is the heading that gives us our dispensation of the fullness of time. And then really the details come in at the end of the chapter in verses 20 through 23. Jesus Christ is head over all things. I think that gets left out a lot. We understand Christ is head of the church, we get that. Christ is the head, the church is the body, I get that. But the church is the body and the fullness of he who fills. And uh, the, the fullness centers on not the present church age, but the future age of glory. So Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, wow. This too is uh, much broader than uh, we're going to possibly be able to develop this morning. But um, jot it down, put the verses down, chew on it. Recognize that it's a larger study, that what we're dealing with this morning is a part of a much larger study. But all of this centers on glorifying the Father forever. Glorifying the Father starting today by glorifying the Son. Starting today by operating as a bride to our husband. Because we are the body and bride of Jesus Christ. Okay. Ephesians chapter 1. Um... I promise I won't read the entire chapter, but I'll read a uh, significant section. All right, verse 3, blessed be, notice, blessed be the Father. This is a song 
Paul composes a, a song here that is a happiness, uh, it is a eulogetos blessing, praise to the Father. And it celebrates the Son and His bride. It celebrates uh, us in Christ. So eulogetos, blessed be the God and Father. And that whole be, blessed be, is, is just like the glory be that we're looking at in Philippians 4. We're not wishing for something to happen some, someday. We're, we're saying now. Now and forever. Amen. So he is eulogetos now. He will be eulogetos forever. We are glorifying him now. We will be glorifying him forever. We'll never stop glorifying him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that verse right there needs to be paid attention to by all these people confused over trying to steal the new covenant from Israel and give it to the church. Okay, Israel has future promised blessings. When they receive the new covenant, the new covenant will contain a package of future promised blessings. It's spelled out in Jeremiah, it's spelled out in the prophets, it's spelled out in Hebrews. Israel will receive future promised blessings. And it's not these. Okay? There's just so much confusion. We'll get into more of this next hour in our Hebrew study. We do not have Israel's future promised blessings because Israel doesn't have Israel's future promised blessings yet. They haven't been given yet. The kingdom isn't here yet. We have something greater than those future promised blessings to the nation of Israel. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. All right, Israel was a chosen nation, but they weren't chosen in Christ. They're not baptized into union in Christ. Today, when a believer gets saved, if they've got a Jewish background or a Gentile background, they get saved, they become neither Jew nor Gentile, but a new creation in Christ. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. The personal adoption of the bride to the Father according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. Who's getting glorified forever? God the Father is getting glorified forever in the Son and in us. To the praise of the glory of His grace which He, God the Father, freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. That's in Christ. Jesus is the Beloved One and Hopefully it's a capital B in your, uh, in your Bible there. So it's in Him. It's in Christ. All of our blessings are in Christ. You and I have no blessing apart from Christ. In Christ we have every blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And so this is our present blessing, but it's also looking forward to our future glory. Now, um, verse uh, 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. Remember, you can't separate the will of God from the good pleasure of God. His good pleasure, which by the way is also connected to His glory. His good pleasure, and He's making it known to us. We're the mystery. We We weren't revealed before. 
There was no Old Testament prophecy talking about the bride, talking about the church, talking about a mystical body that's neither Jew nor Gentile, but one new man in Christ. So it's the kind intention which he purposed in him, in Christ, with a view to a dispensation or an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is what we're driving at. That's the purpose of God the Father. It's not the church age. The church age gets us ready for that. It's the dispensation of the fullness of times. And this is what the Father's kept in his view. He never lost track of that. When he, uh, when he let me put it back up here, when, uh, when he had angels as his stewards, he never lost track of what his ultimate goal was, was the fullness of times. When he had Adam and Eve and, the, and Adamic humanity as his stewards through the days of Noah and Enoch and all the rest, he, that wasn't the totality of his plan. He was looking forward to the fullness of times. Even when he called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and he put a theocratic nation on this earth, he set apart one race to be the stewards to every other race on this earth the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. That was still not the culmination of his plan because he was looking forward to a fullness of times, the summing up of all things in Christ. Even presently in the church, this mystery age, and as glorious as this present age is, this is just the beginning. This is step one. This is is preparing a, a bride for his son. It's the coming age that he's always had a focus on. You know, sometimes we say, keep your eye on the ball. (laughs) The father had his eye on the ball, never took it off. His plan was always this omega moment from alpha to omega to glorify the son. So it says, with a view to an administration, a dispensation, an economy suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. You notice what's missing out of that verse? Yeah, there's no more under the earth. That's right. In Philippians, all things was in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. That was the Philippians definition of everything. Here the definition of everything is in the heavens and on the earth, because it's new earth. And there's no more under the earth. The lake of fire is sealed off for all eternity. Gone. All right? Never to be seen by us or thought of ever again. So, Uh, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. And so this is what we're looking forward to. And it can't happen during the church age because the whole bride is never assembled until the church age is over. Think about it, most of the bride today is in heaven. (laughs) It's only the last remnant that's still here on this earth and it's really the last remnant, the, uh, the diminished, you know, hungry, you know, barely hungry, lingering hunger, remnant not walking by much faith remnant that's uh, that's left on the on the earth today most of the brides in heaven all right and so when the bride is complete we got some neat things to look forward to um now as far as the rest of this chapter goes i do want to get down to verse 20 and following notice though um What we have now is simply a deposit. We've got a down payment. We have the Holy Spirit. So verse 13, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so that's what we have. We've had that. Each of us personally have had this since the day we got saved. 
We get the Holy Spirit, we're sealed in Christ. Eternal security, we can never lose it. Here we have it. And the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this is just simply our down payment. It's our deposit. It's the earnest money. Though The rest of this inheritance is just waiting. And so it's given us a pledge of our inheritance. You're not sitting around waiting for the life insurance check to show up. And how many weeks does that take anyway? All right. <laughs> we get the Holy Spirit and we have a taste of the powers to come. And uh, we're waiting for that trumpet to sound when we get the rest of it. So a uh, pledge of our inheritance with a view, with a view, remember what did the Father have in view? With a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. I told you, this is connected to what we're looking at this morning, to praising the Father both now and forever. To the praise of His own glory. All right. Skip on down now to... There's just so much. You've got to have our eyes open to truth. We've got to know all of the dimensions of truth. All right, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We might say, I pray that believers will grow up and get the doctrine that God will instruct us in these things so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. This is more than just getting saved. We're already saved to know this stuff. What is the hope of His calling? What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? You know, when it comes down to it, what is the inheritance? The Father's inheritance. We are the inheritance in the, in the sense, right? The inheritance of the saints. His inheritance in the saints. What is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? And these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Now today we see His might poured forth when we're in trouble, when we need help. When we're weak, then we're strong. So we get little glimpses of His strength during our times of weakness. But all of this is foreshadowing of what will be unveiled to us when uh, we get to uh, enter into glory with the full bride and His Son. All right, so the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, seated Him at at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Remember, all things are in subjection under His feet. So Jesus Christ was resurrected on the third day after His death and He ascended after a 40-day resurrection ministry. And then he was seated. He's been in session ever since. Raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named. Now here we go. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. All right, so the church age has a present glory. But what's coming? What's coming is this fullness of time. What's coming is a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. What's coming is the body and bride of Jesus Christ functioning in His fullness. Not only in this age, but also the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet. All right, we get that. We read that in 1 Corinthians, right? All things, we're excluding the Father. All things are in subjection under His feet. We get that, but there is more than that. Because they're in subjection, they're under His feet, but where are we? 
Are we also under his feet? Yeah, what kind of husband props his feet up on his wife? Or stomps on her, or steps on her, okay? Uh, That's not a... (laughs) Marriage counseling this morning, that's not good. (laughs) You're heirs together of the grace of life. And all things are under Christ's feet. We are in Christ. And it gets spelled out explicitly here. He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things. It's the same all things. The same all things that the Father gave under Jesus' feet are the same all things that He's head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Okay. So we are the fullness of He who fills. We are the body and the fullness. I think during the church age, what we call the church age, right? Between Pentecost and rapture, this present church age. This church age, we are the body of Christ. We're designed to be the fullness, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet because the bride's not finished. You know, before you get married, you want your bride to be grown up. You want your bride to be finished. You take the whole bride with you when you leave the, uh, the wedding ceremony, right? All right. Which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So there is a filling to happen, and that filling doesn't happen until after the millennium, until after the destruction of the current heavens and earth, until the new heavens and new earth. If you, I mean, if you think about it, we are a new creation already. We're just we're 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 ready for our our uh, new universe to come into existence. That's uh, that's a fun thing to think about. It's the first time God has ever prepared the beings before He has prepared the the habitat or the the domain. God didn't create fish and then decide, oops, I need an ocean somewhere. He made the ocean first and then filled it with fish. He made the dry land and put the animals there, the air, and here's some birds. Even the angels, He made the heavens and then populated the heavenly host. Never before has God created beings suitable for a realm that's not here yet until the body and bride of Jesus Christ. You and I are already a new creation in Christ. Still living on an old world. Still, still uh, living here in this world of sin in bodies of death, but we are a new creation in Christ. And so when all things are made new, when the new heavens and new earth finally are exhibited after the the millennium, it's going to be prepared, it's going to be launched, and we're already suiting. That's a glorious thing to think about. So let's start glorifying the Father now. How do we start glorifying the Father now? By glorifying the Son. Let's, let's function as the bride. Let's function as a bride to our husband, to the Lord. Let's magnify Him. Jesus Christ has provided a bride to join Him in eternally glorifying God the Father. Jesus Christ has provided a bride to join Him in eternally glorifying God the Father. This carries us across now to chapter 3. On the way to chapter 3, stop off at 2-7 if you don't mind. 2-7. It's the verse that gets ignored when everybody's in a hurry to get to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. <laughs> and I understand that. 
Everybody here loves Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Great verses. What's the verse that introduces that? Well, really you can see a larger context here, but here we are in Christ. We used to be unbelievers, but now we're saved. Wow. Okay. Um, hmm. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember, remember when you were dead? In which you formerly walked. Dead men walking. Don't let Calvinists or other people tell you that dead people can't do anything. Because dead people can walk right there. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived. Look at something else dead people do. They live. They live selfishly. They've got that living death in Adam. And they live selfishly in the lust of our flesh, indulging something else dead people do. They indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind, where by nature children of wrath even as the rest but god being rich in mercy because of, his, because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and something he never did for any unbelievers prior to the church age he made us alive and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus old testament saints didn't get that that verse was not applicable to anybody who got saved prior to the day of Pentecost in 33 AD, prior to the body of Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So David got saved, Daniel got saved, Noah, all the Old Testament heroes, every last one of them, they were made alive. They were given spiritual life with living human spirits, but they were not raised up and seated in Christ because Christ himself was not exalted at the Father's right hand yet. He had not been magnified following the resurrection and ascension raised us up with him seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus if when you're the king and you seat your bride at your right hand it's it's the queen that's your bride that sits at your right hand so that in the ages to come oh wait a minute (laughs) so that in the ages to come It's a bigger plan than just the church age. The church age from Pentecost to rapture is simply preparation for the ages to come. In the ages to come, he might show super grace. You ever heard that phrase before? You ever have a pastor pastor teach you the doctrine of super grace before? In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And not to dispute with the greatest theologian of the 20th century, but I will tell you, (laughs) super grace is not in the church age. The surpassing grace comes in the fullness of times. The surpassing grace comes in the ages to come. Everything, and I think it's, it's, we sing amazing grace now, it is amazing. It's going to be trans-amazing, beyond amazing when we get to the new heavens and the new earth. It's hyper-ballistic, surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So Ephesians looks forward. Ephesians is deep. Ephesians is powerful both now and forever. All right. Looking forward still. On to chapter 3. Looking forward still. And in verses 19 through 21 we have this. 
uh, really, it's another prayer item, just like Paul was praying in chapter 1. He's praying again in chapter 3, looking forward. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. All the dimensions of doctrine, all of the dimensions from the Word of God that we should comprehend together in the church age, and all of this looking forward to fullness. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the fullness of God. Once we get to the fullness, we're looking forward to the fullness of times. We're looking forward to not the church age. This won't happen pre-rapture, but we're, we, we're, we're still learning and growing and preparing for it. That you may be filled to the fullness of God. We're the fullness of he who fills, but it's the fullness of God that he's filling. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think in a plan that's so much bigger than we usually give it credit for here in the church age, according to the power that works within us, power that all we have now is a down payment. All we got now is just the little deposit money, the earnest money. And honestly, we haven't seen nothing yet. The power that's to be revealed, the grace that's to be revealed, the glory that's to be revealed. Because when he comes back second advent, there's no kenosis again. He's not going to empty himself again. He's coming back to fill. The power that works within us. To him be the glory. Notice now, in the church and in Christ Jesus, when? To all generations. How many generations is that going to be? We have a thousand generations, all of them. To all generations, forever and ever, amen. So it's to the Father. To the Father be the glory. And the Son can't do it by Himself. He needs a bride. By the Father's design, the bride completes what the Son requires. It is not good for the man to be alone. Why was Adam given Eve? Adam had a designed purpose in the image of God, but he needed a helpmate to complete that. Together, they can uh, image God and, and uh, rule the earth and subdue it, be fruitful and multiply. Why does, the, why does the Son need a bride? Why does Jesus Christ need a bride? Okay? There's a marvelous parallel between the first Adam and the second Adam. And uh, the first Adam just lost a rib over it. The second Adam died on the cross, lost everything. It's amazing things to think about here. All right. So Jesus Christ had provided a bride to join him in eternally glorifying God the Father. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I hope we can chew on this. hope we can consider um, how this functions, what our role will be what our role should be now in uh, in preparation and anticipation the role that we have to glorify the father are we going to wait for heaven to start doing this no we're going to wait till we die to start praising him of course not of course not all right forever forever and ever amen 
It's not just a Randy Travis song. All right. Let me get back to Philippians. The um, forever and ever. Of all the ways to talk about forever, and of all the um, silliness that uh, folks come up with, I think there's some. Um, um, I don't know. There's there's different scholars for different reasons that have to uh, have to write PhD theses and and they got to defend dissertations and they've got to they got to get published in journals and they've got to come up with a lot of things and and so some of the things they come up with are wrangling about words that the Bible warns us about and they're wrangling about words and and one of the things they're fond of doing is telling us that forever doesn't necessarily mean forever. Okay. Or virgin doesn't necessarily mean virgin. That well, it could mean a young woman of marriageable age, and and they they just they they come up with these these silly things, and uh, and and failing to recognize, of course, that regardless of whatever the lexical definition is, it's the context and usage that determines meaning, and the context and usage when you have a word like forever. That normally means forever. That occasionally can be used idiomatically. Don't take that occasional exception to the rule and throw the whole word out, right? So an occasional exception to the rule does not invalidate the rule. In fact, I think it reinforces the rule. It means that forever means forever. If, if, you're, if you're encountering a strange idiomatic exception or if you're encountering a, a, a rather unusual infrequently used kind of rare usage that doesn't destroy the normal usage. I think it just reinforces it. It's um and then particularly when the context of that usage is is paralleled with other expressions. So when you're promised eternal life and eternal means eternal except for some, you know, rare places where idiomatically you can take it to mean something else. Um, you, you're not afraid of that when in the plain language of it, it means what it means and it also adds to that and says you'll never die. Right? So John chapter 11, he who believes in me will never die. So what part of will never die don't you understand? It goes along with will have everlasting life. And so these, these expressions, they seem redundant but they reinforce each other. Because if something happens forever and if something never happens, you're saying the same thing in two different ways. You have eternal life. You will never die. So I think God built into His Word all the answers that's going to you know, deal with 19th, 20th, and 21st century theological insanity. Okay, From the German higher criticism on, we've been uh, dealing with a bunch of these smarty pants that are too good for their own yeah, bridges. All right. So just in case between now and Wednesday you happen to be reading on Ion or on Olam, if you want to do some Greek studies on Ion, number, Strong's number is 165, or you want to do a Hebrew word study on Olam, number 5769. Remember the Hebrew numbers are separate set from the Greek numbers. Um, you, you will come across examples where Ion does not mean forever. It just means a long, long age, a long period of time. 
And that's fine. In those contexts, it's great. Likewise, olam can speak of long ages, times past. Not necessarily infinite, not necessarily eternal. You can find places where the usage falls within that spectrum and we're not afraid of that. In addition to those usages, there are the, the plain usages where it does mean forever. Okay? And we do the same thing in English, by the way. My children will often say that my stories last forever. Okay? My church members will tell me that sometimes my illustrations just go on and on forever. Obviously, that's an idiomatic use that uh, applies to the fact that I've got two minutes remaining in this hour. But we do that. And, And the Greeks did that. And the Hebrews did that. When they wanted to express a very, very long time, ages past, they would use olam, or they would use ion. And it communicated effectively what they wanted to communicate. So forever and ever, tus ionos ton ionon, amen. And we're going to talk about this, and I'm going to teach you how to read Greek even if you don't want to. The, um, the tus ionos ton ionon, unto the ages of the ages, unto the ages of the ages. And sometimes it's, it's, that's the full and, and longest form of it that we have in the Old Testament or New Testament. Sometimes it's just unto the ages, which means forever. But if it's unto the ages of the ages, then that's forever and ever. Okay, And it, it gets brought out there so that idiomatically we have that sense of infinity. It's a way to express a time that doesn't end. It's a way to express something that never stops. It's just unto the ages of the ages. And sometimes uh, this is singular, and sometimes this is singular. Um, we'll show you the different variations. All the, There's a variety of different ways that you could express forever, and the Bible does have quite a variety. But then, amen, let it be so. It is faithful. God will bring it about. It's, it's a testimony to his faithfulness that an eternal God can accomplish an eternal plan. And so since he promised it, he's got to do it. And all we got to do is say, amen. Make it so, or it is so. It is faithful. It is true. And so those titles for Jesus Christ is faithful and true. That's what it means to be the amen. So we'll talk about... Uh, Greek and Hebrew for eternity, Greek and Hebrew for amen. Um, Yeah, we'll pick up here on Wednesday, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for opening our eyes to really a huge spectrum of uh, of in-depth teaching. And and we have it coming up, Father. We've studied it in the past in in our uh, fullness of time studies. We've studied it in the past in the Plan of God series. We've got a reader in the hallway on the Plan of God series. And Father, uh, we'll have it coming up again after uh, Colossians and Philemon. Father, you'll be taking us through Ephesians in a very deep way. And I pray that you would open our eyes to recognize this, to see what our role is as the bride, that we might begin even now, even today, to be praising you, to be praising your son, to be magnifying our, our Lord. He did so much for us, Father, that, uh, that now uh, he is worthy and we want to glorify him with every thought, word, and deed. So open our eyes to see 
the uh, areas of our life where we're not giving him the glory and uh, and change that change that in our thinking so that we uh, glorify him with everything we think say and do i thank you father in jesus christ's name amen